You're listening to the Game Street Obvious podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I am joined today by Marie D'Alessandri, Jeffrey Russo, Sophie McAvoy, and Brendan Sinclair. And as I say, probably every year, this is my favourite podcast that we do every year because this is our Games of the Year show. I'm very aware I've just said the word year three times in quick succession yet. It's a quick succession there. Um, I'm so excited I can't talk. This is where we finally get to take off our business hats for a while and we put on our game-playing hats. And we're going to be talking about the uh, the best games that we've played in the last year. By the time this uh, this podcast comes out, you probably see our articles already on the site, so you can read in depth uh, reasons for our choices on the on the site. But this is a bit more of a kind of a follow up discussion, as it were. And we're going to start. We're going to, we're going to get the inevitable out of the way. We're going to get the obvious one out of the way, Marie. As if we don't already know, what is your game of the year? It's Baldur's Gate three. No one saw that coming. Uh... <laughs> no, shocked. <laughs> well, no, but. Genuinely, though, it wasn't it wasn't a given because like it's been a very amazing, wonderful year for my very personal tastes. Uh, I only played like a handful of games this year compared to probably like 15, 20, I don't know, any other year. Um, but there was a new Zelda this year and obviously love Zelda. I've been playing Zelda my whole life, constantly waiting for the next Zelda. And of course, Baldur's Gate 3, a game that I have literally been waiting for for over 20 years, was finally coming out of early access this year. Um, so I generally thought, silly me, uh, that choosing a game of the year was going to be very difficult because it seemed impossible. How could I choose between Zelda and Baldur's Gate? But I don't know how I could ever think that it could be anything else but Baldur's Gate 3. Um, like, I'm not going to tell you my life story, I promise, but my relationship to Baldur's Gate and to uh, D&D more widely uh, started when I was a literal child. I remember vividly the first time I played Baldur's Gate on my family computer probably around 1999 uh, and like my brother explaining to me how to roll my stats and what mattered and where and all of that stuff so there's something like so like wonderful about developing a link to a specific universe and franchise and and then it delivering in such a meaningful way decades later and like meeting some of these characters again after such a long time and it's been honestly such an emotional journey to a point that I did not imagine or expect uh like, I don't think I've ever experienced that type of uh, linked to a video game before, really. Like, of course, there's there's other franchises I've connected with uh, over the years and stuff, but uh, I don't think there's something that compares to waiting 20 years for <laughs> for a video game. Um, I could list a lot of things that are amazing about Baldur's Gate 3. I think a lot of people would probably say it way better than me, and I've said it way better than me over the course of the past few months, but I will still mention, like what I consider are like the best aspects of it and why it's my game of the year. Uh, I think the role-playing aspect is probably the first thing. Like it's simply incredible in my opinion. Um, like every choice you make seems to be very meaningful and like the whole experience can be tailored to exactly the type of character you want to play. Um, and that's literally like one of the biggest aspects of D&D in real life as well as seeing the consequences of your actions. And I'm sure there are plenty of other games who have done that and who have done it well um but nothing to me comes close to Baldur's Gate 3 and like just the sheer volume of stuff <laughs> that can happen differently depending on on what you do and that very accurately recreates what D&D feels like which I think was the number one thing that Lion really needed for me at least to really nail and they did uh like like in D&D every decision a decision seems to 
I mean, if you have a good DM, <laughs> which I do, uh, each decision you make can trigger a distinct storyline. And that's what Baldur's Gate 3 feels like. And I think I appreciated that even more on my second playthrough as I had aspects of uh, the story develop in completely drastically different ways. Um, and it's just like, if I count the early access, I think I played act one, probably, I don't know, some, something between like five and seven times. Uh, and somehow <laughs> there's still things that I do differently and secrets I find that I did not know were there. Uh, because on my previous playthrough, I don't know, I failed my perception check and now I didn't. So just incredible stuff. And uh, I've got to commend the writing as well, which is probably one of the most incredible piece of narrative in video games ever written. That, that's it, I said it. Uh, <laughs> with a cast that's just incredible, with voice actors that, are, I, that I adore, and I'm very happy for all of them that they seem to be having a wonderful moment um, under the spotlights there. Um, and then the combat system that super accurately reproduce what combat feels like in real life D&D. &D. <laughs> uh, but, but somehow still like perfectly adapted to make it make sense for a video game. I just don't know how they did that shit, but it's pretty good. Um, and what else did I want to mention? Yes, the fact Can that I they also- a question? Yeah, of course, go for it. Because I could be talking for hours. Maybe I will actually. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, so I just want to uh, ask a question here, um, if, if that's cool. Um, I'm just about everything that you said right now uh, is sounds very familiar to me because it's kind of like it feels like what I said about uh, Divinity last game, Divinity Original Sin 2, <laughs> when when that was like my game of the year a few years ago. Now, I haven't played Baldur's Gate 3. Um, it's it's on my list, but it's not on Switch. Uh, sounds and I'm. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you played Divinity also, right? Yes. So if if everything that you're saying right now is what I felt about Divinity, how am I going to feel about the the difference between that and Baldur's Gate 3? So it's a very difficult comparison to make for me because I haven't played, I think, enough Divinity. Like, I've played Divinity, but I've played, what, maybe 20 hours of it, which obviously, as we know, it's a massive game, like, so is Baldur's Gate 3, right? And so even if it's a, a big chunk of playing video games, it's, like, um, it's difficult to compare. And I don't know, I think, like, for me, and that, again, that's a very personal thing here, but the fact it's set in, in the in Fearun, in, in the D&D universe that I play every week with my friends, is obviously a massive uh, selling point. Uh, so it's difficult, I don't know if I really have the answer to that, but I do feel like anyone who, who, who liked Divinity uh, will, I think, love Baldur's Gate 3, honestly. Because like, I think that's the thing with Baldur's Gate is that it feels like lying decades of experience during these wonderful RPGs applied to what I feel like is their masterpiece. It's like they took the best bits of the Baldur's Gate franchise and took the best bits of what they've done over the years with Divinity and combined it and created this thing that just like surpasses expectations and around both of these uh, IPs, if that makes sense. Like, that's how I, but again, like, it feels really difficult for me to, uh, to compare to Divinity. And the, the reason I haven't played more of Divinity is actually because I kept comparing it to Baldur's Gate, funnily enough, because uh, I could see that it was similar, but it, did, it just didn't click 
to that extent. So the, the fact they managed to combine the, like that expertise with the universe and the franchise I loved so dearly, I think is what made it work. So I don't know if that truly answers your question. Marie, I'm very disappointed you can't tell me how I'm going to feel. <laughs> You're going to feel... one simple thing. <laughs> You're going to feel the same way as you feel in Divinity, though, as in, like, you do a silly thing and all of a sudden the silly thing has had consequences. It's like, it's the consequences yes. of your action thing. That's what we want. We want to be held accountable for, for what we're doing in video games. Yes. We want to That's feel bad. <laughs> we want to feel bad for being the bad guy. Uh, but yeah, so I think I think it's similar in that. In, but that's the thing, like, that's what I find completely bonkers about this game is how people who've loved Divinity love Baldur's Gate 3. People who have no idea what Baldur's Gate even is love Baldur's Gate 3. People who love RPGs love Baldur's Gate 3. Like, the fact they managed to appeal equally to someone who's been following the franchise for years or to someone who's never heard about it before is just crazy. And, like, I saw, I saw tweets of people who played the original Baldur's Gate for the first time as a result of BG3 and some loved it, uh, loved them, if they played both of them, uh, and some of us were like, what the fuck was that? Uh, and, that's, <laughs> and that's so funny to me because like, I feel like the DNA of that franchise is all over Baldur's Gate 3. Like, it's, it's impossible to deny how like, worthy of a follow-up it is, but also it's something completely different. It's a very modern game and it's like, it doesn't feel stuck in the past and it's like, so I think because of that, that's probably why if, if you've loved Divinity 2, you will probably love Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, I think. Who knows? But yeah, yeah well, I mean, I could, yeah. I love when you're talking about how the game will adapt to, you know, like whatever you choose to do, because that's always been like my problem with like the, the Mass Effect or mm. the, the Quantic Dream model of sort of role-playing games where it's like, I want to do something really unwise, right now yeah. or i want to throw a wrench in the story that it seems like you're telling and those other games will be like um well we'll entertain that a little bit to a point but then we're going to get you back on track here or something like that but uh divinity and it sounds like Baldur's gate 3 are much more like the actual dungeon master experience mm -hmm. where they're like oh you want to be antagonistic oh great let's do this yep <laughs> okay Wow, so you just did the really dumb thing, and now everyone's on fire. What next? Yeah, and it, it, you just described it in a nutshell. That's exactly what Baldur's Gate 3 feels like. Like, generally, and I've, ju I've just... I'm, I'm doing a second playthrough now, and there's something that happens really early on in the game where I thought I was being really smart by, like, essentially, like... Uh, escorting a prisoner out of a place being like oh yeah and then like I can uh, use them to infiltrate the camp right but I didn't really think about the fact that once we were back to their camp so the, the bad guys camp that they were gonna tell the the baddie about where the good people were and that, that they were gonna come and murder all the good people I didn't think about that and it happened and then I was like shit now I gotta save everyone and it was just oh, I love this game that's amazing <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Like, so I'm I'm one of those people who I haven't been able to get into CRPGs like this before. I quite enjoyed Neverwinter Nights back in the day, but I never got further than Act Two. I tried but didn't get into Icewind Dale. I tried but didn't get into Baldur's Gate. And this one, like, I think when the when the reviews came out, I was reading so much about it. And again, it's like that freedom, the you know the the autonomy you've got to approach things in different ways. Like, I actually really like the sound of this. 
and so yeah like even even on simple things like um you know said enemy camp that you're in, you're you're referring to there like there's a quest or uh, there seems to be a moment where you've got to take out a particular bad guy facing him head on just does not work or certainly didn't for me so i thought right okay i'll find there's rafters above i'll see if i can go up there and kind of like snipe him essentially and it did work and then it didn't and chaos ensued and it it does a really good job of feeling like everything you're experiencing in your playthrough is yours. You are not going through the same set pieces that everyone else is going through. You're not experiencing the same moments or the same developer. It is all, as you say, like it's the consequences of your actions. You chose to do this, therefore you've got to deal with it. And it's just, it's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm only at the end of Act 1. I've, I've only played Act 1 once, like <laughs> uh, Marie with her five or seven times. But um, I really do want to kind of push on and, and get to the end of it. Like the there's certain moments where and certain interactions i've had where this is clearly going to follow on throughout the whole game i'm clearly going to when i eventually reach the city of Baldur's gate i'm clearly going to pay the price for this or i've got to follow up on this and i really want to see where each of these threads go i'm really enjoying it it's it's very very impressive game yeah and like in, in talking about like following the threads like and i think that's for more more for people who've, who've followed the franchise over the years but like the Easter eggs you get as a as a lifelong fan of the franchise and like some of the uh, like these threads you follow deliver in such an emotional and impactful manner that it honestly blew my mind. Like I've I've ugly cried at this game more times than I care to admit, honestly, just because like what I thought was gonna be like a meaningless piece of information in Act One ended up in this very emotional thing in Act Three. And while all still being like only not only relevant but mostly relevant for someone who has played the previous games but like uh, it's just it's like it's not it's not just my game of the year like it's my game of the of the decade like it's my uh, as in like no actually it's my game of <laughs> i've reshuffled my entire top 10 of my favorite games of all time and i've put Baldur's gate 3 at number two just below Baldur's gate like that's just as good as it's like it's that good <laughs> We are definitely in danger of uh, filling a whole hour with Baldur's Gate 3, Sorry. so I'm going to kind of move it. No, no, not at all. Not at all. It's a, it's a good opener. Um, but I'm going to move us on to someone else. Let's uh, go with Brendan. Brendan, what is your game of the year? My game of the year is Pikmin 4. Ah. Um, it's the one I'm writing about, uh, at least, because the game I've played the most this year is probably Elden Ring. Um, I... I got sick early in the year and as i was isolating from from the family i just kind of sat there with g cloud playing elden ring for days on end and it was kind of great um but pikmin 4 is like as far as games that came out this year and, and it's a really good game first of all but it was also really interesting to me because pikmin 3 came out a decade ago it was one of one of my like i guess favorite games of the the generation but it's weird to call it favorite because like pikmin 3 i found like an emotionally harrowing game which might sound kind of weird um i, I wrote a bit for it on us gamer and now it's on vg247 about pikmin 3 being the greatest war game ever made <laughs> because it is ruthless with the the way it, it casts you as like a general and the pikmin are your soldiers and you have to decide 
how many casualties you will accept as you go through that game. And they are very cute, the Pikmin. <laughs> so you feel really bad about doing things like, you know, throwing them headlong into the jaws of death or the jaws of a bulb orb or whatever it is, or, or messing up and like, whoops, the controls confused me for a second. And then I just threw a whole bunch of these Pikmin that can't swim into the water. And That's awful. Yeah. And now they're just drowning and they are not having a good time of it. And I feel terrible about that. And then it's like, okay, but this is a 20 minute long mission that I'm in the middle of. Do I want to like start over? Uh, I don't know. If there are any Pikmin in the field that you don't get back to your starting point, your ship, your safe point, by the end of the day, they your ship takes off and then you see this little cinema of the Pikmin running around as a bulb orb or some other wildlife chases them down and eats them. And it's horrific. And it, it got me thinking a, a lot about like um, some some old old war movies that were really kind of gripping and, and harrowing also and and thinking about you know if, you, if i'm a general like what what to what extent are the soldiers just tools to accomplish whatever ob- objective i have and completely dehumanized as a result and i really kind of stewed on that pikmin 4 is a great game but it is not that at all pikmin 4 is that they they sanded off all of the edges and they made it super friendly to, to to play in a in a in a more relaxed, cute way. It's like I think a lot of people would play the original Pikmin games, pick it up thinking it's cute, and then they'd get into it and it would just be like, This is this is kind of harsh <laughs> and it's not it's not the easy fun experience I was hoping for. And Pikmin four really kind of puts that on its head and they like they give you a pet dog that can do most of your attacking for you so you don't even need to use pikmin especially in like boss battles where you can just like buy some bombs and use those and leave all your pikmin safely behind there's a rewind function for when you mess up and you can just like go back a minute or two in the gameplay instead of having to like reload the entire day from scratch and do a 20 minute mission again on your own and and it's it's much comfier uh, as as a game and Honestly, for where I am in my life right now, I appreciated that. Like 10 years ago, um, before, you know, before I, I had a kid in the picture, we'll say, and before the rest of the world sort of decided it was going to embrace the worst possible timeline, uh, I, 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 was, I was up for that. You know, I was like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to this movie and I want it to mess me up. I'm going to I'm going to pick up this game and I want it to to just you know dig its hooks in me and twist and whatever it is just you know make make me regret the the decision but also experience some some aspect of humanity which is really compelling. Uh and and I I'm not really signing up for those kind of experiences that much these days. And Pikmin 4 was it was is a really kind of friendlier take on it and it's it's much more the nintendo design that you would have expected from those original pikmin games which were uh i think secretly 
really, really harsh um, confrontational games with the player. I've never played a Pikmin game before, and I have to say, like, the first half of what you just said, I was like, oh my god, that sounds truly awful. Why would I ever want to play a Pikmin game? But then you single-handedly convinced me to play Pikmin 4, so good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same. Like, I've, I've, I've tried Pikmin 1, and I found it really difficult. And yeah, like you said, like, just really frustrating and heartbreaking. Like, how many Pikmin you lose? This sounds like... I'm the same as you, Brendan. Like, I kind of... I like easier, more relaxing experiences... And this sounds right. I'm half. To, I, honestly, if my switch was on my desk, I'd have been downloading the demo. It's it's good stuff. And like I'm looking at my um, my end of playthrough results right now, and just under forty hours of play, and I I had one thousand five hundred fifty one Pikmin, and I lost zero of them. Amazing. Which is an absolute lie because <laughs> I lost a ton of them, <laughs> and then used that rewind feature. And then there are these night missions where you have these like glowing spirit Pikmin that you use for um, like guarding, guarding a base basically from uh, horde mode or whatever. The, the wildlife gets all zombified and comes and attacks in waves. And those uh, spirit Pikmin, they don't count. <laughs> so, oh. so when they die, it's just like, oh, well, they're, they're spirits. So they go back to wherever the spirits come from. And we don't sure. hold that against you. Video game reasons. <laughs> yes. So this is this is Pikmin with the like the child proof bumpers everywhere. Um, it's not it's not like as straightforward and easy, I guess, as like a Kirby game. But there's also like if you if you have these Dandori battles, where uh, it's a it's a one on one thing, and and Pikmin deaths in that also don't count, <laughs> where. You you are in a play field and like you just have to gather a bunch of the fruit or materials and bring them back to your to your base while some other opponent is trying to bring the same stuff back to their base. And if you lose those, then you just get a message from one of your you know your fellow tiny astronaut people saying, "Hey, do you want me to give this one a shot?" And then they'll take over and they'll just win the Dandori battle for you. So you don't have to replay it at all. Um, so there, there are things like that also in there to, to just really take away the frustration and the stress of, of playing the game. And it, it turns out that when you do that, what's left, while, while it makes it a less um, unusual and less striking game, it does make it a less stressful and more relaxing and fun game and and there's there's like a real kind of simple joy in exploring these these levels and then finding a giant piece of fruit and it's just so lovingly rendered in hd that you're just like oh my gosh it's an apple i've never seen such a beautiful <laughs> apple in my life and then sometimes it's like oh it's a game boy micro or a game boy advance cartridge something like that and you can kind of like ooh, it's it's nice to get your little nostalgia kick seeing old nintendo stuff and dragging that back to the to the ship i'm still like seven years on i'm still impressed with how nice things can look on the switch like obviously certain things can't look can't look as stunning as like on the xbox series x or the uh the playstation 5 but still like the the, the switch is not a bad piece of hardware seven years on 
and some stuff can still look amazing on it, yeah, including Pikmin Apple's, on the GameCube still looks great. Yeah, like Pikmin three on the Wii U, the the the, the fruit and it, it's it's like listening to people talk about water effects in in games, like the fruit <laughs> in Pikmin three is next gen. That was the leap. That was like the PlayStation to to Dreamcast kind of leap for fruit in games. I expect, nay, demand lots of fruit pictures in your Game of the Year article. Ah, okay. I think I can do that. (laughs) Um, Let's move on. Sophie. First time on the podcast. Uh, Good fun podcast for you to make your debut on. What have you been playing this year? What's your favourite game of the year? Well, if you followed me on social media, you'll probably see that my personality has shifted to Alan Wake 2. So. <laughs> nice when the game takes over. <laughs> Literally, like, since we came back from EGX, I have not been playing anything else other than Remedy games. It has turned out now, so... <laughs> So how many times have you <laughs> oh. played, well, all of them? Uh, right, okay, right. Alan Wake, the first one, I've played three times. I've played Quantum Break, like, one and a half times because I got bored of it, then went back into it. Control, <laughs> I've played one and a half times because I'm playing it again now. And then Alan Wake 2, I've played twice through and I'm playing it again now. <laughs> Amazing. So I... <laughs> I know oh nothing about Alan Wake. I've never played any of them. Like, well, I've, I've actually not played any Remedy game, actually. Uh, so can you, like, tell me? <laughs> tell me everything. Uh, like, what are the, the key things, like, the key reason why I should be playing these games? Well, Alan Wake 2 is quite unique because you don't necessarily need to play, like, the first one whatsoever because... They've introduced like two new characters, well not two new characters, they've introduced one new character with Alan Wake and she kind of acts as the like gateway for new players because she literally doesn't mm. know anything about who, it- well he- she kind of knows who he is because like he's like a best-selling author in that world but he goes missing like a decade ago and she's back in the town like looking for not him but like some murders that are happening but you enter Alan Wake 2 as her. So you're not playing as Alan Wake when you start it. He comes in like, I don't know, two hours into it, I think. Which is quite strange, actually, when you're playing it after playing Alan Wake immediately before that. Because you're like, where has he gone? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want Alan back. But um, yeah, it's just weird, like, that they've managed to do it so that you really do not need to know what Alan Wake is about to play Alan Wake 2. And it's bizarre how they've managed to pull that off, to be honest. Having played Alan Wake first, before Alan Wake 2. Because I literally played it, like, finished the first game the night before the second one came out, I think. So I was really fresh in it. And then it's just so, like, incredible how they've managed to pull that off, really, narratively. Would you say that there were... um a good number of Easter eggs throughout Alan Wake 2 because you played through Alan Wake 1? Yeah. I'm really? kind of annoyed okay. with myself because I wish I actually played Alan Wake 2 like not playing Alan Wake beforehand because the whole point of the game is that he's going through like loops, like he's repeating himself over and over again 
and he doesn't remember mm. what's happening but you know what's happening as you're playing it and because i played animate before that i already had the knowledge but if i hadn't have played it before i think i would have been more like each playthrough like learning new and new bits because you find out bits that he hasn't found out yet and then when you play it again after playing it the first time you're like oh shit i know what's happening now oh my god oh my god but he doesn't know what's happening <laughs> <laughs> and then they're gonna um i don't know when they're announcing the new game plus thing but they're doing it like the game ends in a way like it's the end of the beginning and it's not the beginning it's really confusing but like New Game Plus is gonna add an alternative narrative where he kind of I think knows what's happening as you're playing it rather than not knowing, and then oh wow an alternate ending that's like the true ending, which is so exciting. <laughs> but yeah, like yeah, you can literally really cool. play like I've played it obviously twice through now, and I'm playing it the third time. And even the third time I'm noticing bits that I haven't noticed before because I play Control now as well, and it's literally like a stepping stone for Control too. So. So, given that you're um, you're on a bit of a remedy binge at the moment, what is it about Alan Wake Two then that makes it? It sounds like Alan Wake Two is the favourite out of all of them. Like, what what makes it? What elevates it above all the other remedy titles? Uh, well, the first one was like I've never experienced like a game that it's literally like a TV show, like it's episodic, and I've never experienced that before. And it was really like Twin Peaksy and X Filesy, and they have live action bits, and then. In Control and Quantum Break, they kind of like expanded on the live action parts and merged it in a bit more. But like Alan Wake 2, it's like, it doesn't feel like you're playing a game half the time. It feels like you're playing a movie, but then you're, but it doesn't feel like you're playing a movie as well, the way they've integrated the live action. Because mm. it only happens when you're in the dreamscape part of it, the live action bit. So it's not like jarring or anything. It kind of makes sense, but doesn't make sense because it's really surreal and like, it's just, it, the effort they've put into this is just incredible playing it, like, with the live-action actors and, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Ilka Billy, the guy that plays Alan Wake, is, like, just incredible watching him in this one compared to the first one. It's just, like, I think that's what's done it for me with this one. It's just how it's, like, a love letter to storytelling and art in all mm. forms, whether, like, because it includes video games, television, film, music, writing, poetry, photography is all in there. And it's, like just strikes the perfect balance of live action and gameplay together. I just love it. <laughs> That's amazing. You're talking about music. I have a super niche question. What is the involvement of Finnish band Poets of the Fall in this video game? Because I know the band and I have, because we're recording this on the, the afternoon before uh, the Game Awards and I gathered that the band was gonna so it's a band I've listened like literally my whole life. It's a band I adore. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them I've seen them live twice. And I have no, I had no idea they had any involvement in this until well, I follow you on Twitter, so I do have to consume a lot of Alan Wake related content <laughs> as a result. Uh, so are they <laughs> have they made the soundtrack? Like what's their involvement? Well, I'll give you a history lesson. Um <laughs> In the first, I think it's Max Payne, no, not the first Max Payne, the second Max Payne, they did a song in that one. And then in Alan Wake, the first Alan Wake, they are portrayed as a fictional band called Old Gods of Asgard. And they kind of gotcha. like, um, not tell Alan what to do, but they kind of like point him in the right direction with songs. And the song lyrics literally tell the story of what's happening basically if you listen to it like the songs 
But um, that's incredible. They only okay. have two songs in no, three songs in Alan Wake. But this one, they're literally releasing a greatest hits album as Old Gods of Asgard tomorrow. So. <laughs> Okay. All right. Sorry for sorry for the niche question, but I <laughs> might as well ask it here. <laughs> but in this game, they are like one of, if not one of the main characters in this game, basically is the band. Like, I don't want to spoil like major bits of it, but there is a certain section that everyone's talking about that hopefully they do do at the Game Awards tonight. So. <laughs> okay. No, I, I do find it always super interesting when when music. Well, I mean, like you just said, like seems like the game really integrates like all sorts of different medium and like it all works well together where that's uh live action music uh or video games and yeah that's just really cool sounds awesome yeah they're like my favorite part of this to be honest in the second game they really i think they did um how many songs i think four songs they've done in this one this time and they literally like the band appear in the game in live action but dressed up as the characters this time (laughs) that's cool but yeah I had a question. So, from gameplay, it looks like, um, and you'll, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. So, you do have to shoot things, yes? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shadow <Okay>. people, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Because I was wondering, it's like, what the heck is that? Okay. Um, and I, I think I read, um, that the game also has like accessibility features where you can choose to either, uh, I I think it's like avoid combat or bosses or something like that if you just want to experience the story. Um, I haven't looked into that bit. They did it in control. I remember they did that where you didn't, you could like do one hit kills and be immortal in it. Cause I was doing that a lot cause sometimes it just gets overwhelming. But I can't remember if they do it in this game or not. You can definitely do it on like story mode, and it's. I did it this morning because I've got overwhelmed by something and changed. You can just change the difficulty immediately, and it's like just so much easier on story mode. But that's really good. The combat's much yeah. less like in the first game, you'd get like hordes of enemies on you, and it could get really annoying quite quickly because you have to burn the shadow off people, then shoot them. And when you have like 10 of them doing that at once, you're like really overwhelmed by it. But they've changed it to a survival horror in this one. So it's more like the suspense of it and you only get attacked like by I don't know, a group of three people maybe at once. If that. But it is very scary as well. <laughs> I think that's that's the aspect that's prevented me from, from like playing it really is I'm a bit yeah. worried about the, the the scary bits. I'm not I don't play horror games at all, so I've never played a survival horror before. Like this is my first experience of playing one, but they don't like the jump scares aren't necessarily like they're they are there to scare you obviously but um it's more done in like a narrative sense like it makes sense why they put it's basically they flash like a black and white title card of an image of a character or something that's out to get you but at certain Mm. points but it makes sense at the time but it still jumps like the absolute crap out of me (laughs) (laughs) and i know what's coming so it's like it's very weird now (laughs) But it's not gory or anything like that. It's not like for the sake of being scary. It's like more of a psychological horror sort of vibe. Because people kept calling it like a walking simulator, which I do not agree with. But because you're just walking around being scared all the time. But it's more like the atmosphere and aesthetic of it more than anything. So less of a walking simulator, more of a freaking out simulator. Yeah, in a way. <laughs> yeah, you're just like kind of 
of on your edge of your seat the whole time going like when is something going to come out with me <laughs> why do the woods sound like this <laughs> <laughs> see I, I was i was intrigued but i'm very much uh leaning back in my seat sort of game rather than edge of my seat sort of game <laughs> like we've got, i love how we've gone from brendan's very relaxing pikmin to the freakiest game <laughs> that came out this year um i yeah, but they're both designed I, to be like played and and like oh this part you don't like we'll skip that part for you which is like such a great, yeah that that is maybe my favorite development in game design standards for the last decade yeah just run away why don't more games let you do this running away is the yeah. best I love Baldur's Gate running. also lets you run away I have to talk about Baldur's Gate at all times so know that it also lets you run away. <laughs> <laughs> Running away is the game design trend of 2023. That was the tip I was giving everyone on Twitter, like, because they kept asking me about how to play the first game and not get overwhelmed. I'm like, literally, just like, if you can't deal with it, just run away and go to a light. Like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, does your game involve running away? Oh, no, it does not. Oh, that's damn a it. great segue in, into that. So my, <laughs> so I'm a preface. I'm a preface this by saying is that um, I I am someone who uh, obviously I like to think about a lot of things because you know a lot of things <laughs> happen and um, and I don't really necessarily like engage with media and entertainment for the sake of oh let me just forget about things because. Um, those privileges, those privileges aren't really afforded to me. And also I, I don't care to do that anyway, because they're just things I need to think about and work on and stuff like that. So like a lot of times when I try to like check something out, movies, um, what happened to games, whatever. Um, I just think about, okay, well, what's, what are the things that you're, you're trying to say? And is it interesting? Is it done in, in some meaningful kind of way? Um, worst cases, no, it's very watered down. It's like, what is this? Who is made? Who is this made for? And best cases, you know, hey, all right, you 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 did something here. So my game of the year is one of those games that fall into that rare category of, oh, okay, so you you did the thing and you said the thing, which is um, bomb rush, uh, cyberfunk. And thing is, when you read it, the uh, its bullet points are like, oh. Um, you can explore these five boroughs of New Amsterdam. You can recruit all these characters. It's based on um, 90s, uh, early 2000s gay culture. And, oh, there's um, there's um, militarized police that, like, respond to your level of vandalism. And that's just how it reads, right? And that last point, the game is very much about like making a statement about like the militarization of the police like within the first five minutes that like, when you start the game you are busting someone out of detainment and as you're learning the controls and how the game works you are spray painting the police department the headquarters of the police department excuse me and you're skating throughout it and that's officially my favorite tutorial of any game I've played in like I don't know how many years now, because like by the time and and, and while you're learning how to like also um, how to spray paint like a giant mural, you also like run into the police and you have to fight them. But the thing is, these are young people, so really what they're doing is just like you're watching like a young person like 
break dancing and like like beat up the police or whatever. And the thing about the game is that from the start, and the game still hasn't properly started, by the way. It's like this is all before like chapter one, and then you find out why Red and the Bomb Rush crew um want to like beat all the other crews and stuff like that. And, and mainly it's just that for them to get their reputation up and have fun. And, like, just show, like, they have these skills with spray painting, dancing, and, like, skating. And the thing about the game is that throughout the the narrative, which the larger narrative is very weird, but cool weird. Not weird, like, (laughs) what is this weird? It's just, like, you'll play and you ask yourself, what the hell is going on? But anyway, throughout that, like, the game is making a very active statement about the militarization of the police because as the game is, is going and you're, like, beating these other crews, the police are responding to your level of vandalism. And which, by the way, like, as the game presents, it's literally just these young people, like, throwing up graffiti on giant billboards. But the game shows that the police considers them a quote-unquote threat. And like you'll, um, what ha- what normally tends happens like you'll go to an area like for example the the first area um Versailles Hills where it's like this little like it's this bureau it's this town where like it's normally like these buildings that are kind of like brown and just like a basketball court and you can see where like people would just hang out um kids would like dance and stuff like that and the, the Franks where <laughs> there are these basketball players who who look like like Frankenstein this just shows you how creative the game is and they love biking and dancing to like funk music and the thing is like after you like do some of their challenges they'll be like okay well the fun police is here and really just and you know the police come and they're like oh they're trying to stop you and then it, it tends to be like you do this thing where You'll just have to like deal with the police, but as the game goes, like the th- like the threat level, like goes up. So it's like, oh, it's just the cops and their batons. Hmm. But because the game is trying to make a point, then the police become very aggressive. They start pulling guns on you, and then <laughs> another threat is that I'm I'm laughing because it's funny, but but there, there's a there's a point. I'll, I'll that the game is also making and then like you deal with snipers and and literally like even if you choose to like keep your vandalism level down as you're playing a game and you do have the choice of doing that like you can avoid this by like um what the game allows you to do is that you can change a character's color which is um like changing their outfit and you can just drop it down to zero so you can avoid like dealing with that you don't necessarily have to which is you know a good option to have but because the game is making a point about the threat of the militarization of the police, it does have you deal with um, them at different like levels. And it does throw out when it's maxed out. Say you just try to avoid that altogether. The game will just make it maxed out. And what happens is they drop a literal robot, a literal walking robot to deal with you. So again, you know, these are just like kids who are just dancing, doing graffiti, but because the police deem them a quote unquote threat, they drop a literal robot in the middle of a mall to try to deal with you. And yes, you have the ability to stop these things or whatever. And so like, as I'm playing a game, I'm thinking, okay, obviously the developers here are not shy with the point that they're trying to make. And 
what I think about is that in a narrative, the chief of police, he even, it's one of those things where it's not like you're assuming, like he even says, like the chief of police, he even says, no, we have to create this quote unquote crime prevention unit and this quote unquote program to detect when these vandals are going to break the law. And again, you're not, they're not harming people. <laughs> they're literally not. They're just trying to have fun. And um, what the game shows is that along its larger narrative story, which is again, very weird, um, you know, did it shows you what happens when like all these resources are quote unquote meant to protect people are aimed at specific people um, in communities. So obviously I'm thinking about like, okay, well, this is reminding about what happens in real life, right? Which is where, um, if anyone like follows the news in particular, I, I think of, it's made me, uh, it's reminding me to think about things that are happening in um, Atlanta with like cop city and white people are protesting against that. And also how, um, I don't know if anyone has been paying attention specifically, but you'll notice after all those protests in 2020, what the presidential administration did was instead of defunding the police like people ask, what they did instead was increase their budgets. So you can imagine what that happens for certain communities and people, by people like me and limited communities like black communities like mine and, you know, all these things. So. What Bomb Rush Cyberfuck does is that it doesn't just present this and it's just like, okay, you're trying to teach a lesson. No, it's interwoven in a larger story because still the Bomb Rush crew, you're still having a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. Like, the stages are beautiful. The game is very bright. There's all these characters you can choose from. Everyone's very cool. My favorite character is Vinyl. She's this um, young Black woman who, like, skateboards. She's very assertive. She's very confident. She's, like, cool. And my favorite gang is um, the Eclipse Gang, which is this like Afro-futuristic gang of um, <coughs> women, and they like <laughs> they insult you. <laughs> the first thing they do is they insult you, and then they demand that like you pick a female character to like approach them, which is a hilarious way to introduce like, oh, by the way, you can change characters. Um, um, but yeah, there's just so many characters. The characters are all different and, um, the artwork in that game is fantastic because Dave, uh, Team Riptal commissioned so many artists, um, to do different kinds of artwork. And it's not a case of like, well, I want to use my favorite kind of graffiti piece. You just see very beautiful artwork. And something I really like about the game is just like, they were very mindful of the use of color because, um, in the sense of that the bureaus that you go to and the crews that you do battle with or you engage with, like, they match their surroundings. Like, I mentioned, like, Rissom Hill, like, there's a lot of, like, brown, like, tones to match the apartments. And the the Franks uh, crew, you know, a lot of them are, you know, young men who are, like, um, different shades of brown, but, like, they match the setting, right? And then you also have um, .ex crew where they're these... Um, b-boys <laughs> they were all wearing like adidas jumpsuits but uh they all have like robot heads and stuff like that's something else that's also weird in the game because they they just casually mention oh by the way yeah we kind of have like cyborgs and stuff like that but it's cool you know technology technology <laughs> you know 
Um, <laughs> it's just like, just hey, man, okay. Different theme for the gangs. Yeah, it's just like, okay, man, you know, sure. And um, yeah, it's like the characters have a lot of personality. And the other thing, too, when I think a lot about like um, my game of the year, I just think of like, if I was just to like pitch this to a friend who may not play games, you know, like, what would I say? How easy it would be? And the controls aren't really that hard. You can, you know, um, mash it in pretty quickly. It's very intuitive. Um, and yeah, and I think the main story is somewhere around like eight hours, maybe less, if you just like try to rush through it and the story and stuff like that. And with that being said, I've I played through the game like four times already. Like literally, I'm probably on my fifth right now. <laughs> and yeah, it's just, <laughs> and um oh oh that's another thing I forgot. The scoring is really good because when the I have um in my through my interview when I when I interviewed earlier, um I learned that the game director, like, he obviously has a certain musical taste, but obviously he's, like, a big fan of different kind of music. And you can hear that when you play the game because as you're going through these five bureaus, uh, the game plays you a mixtape, but what that is, it's, like, a selection of songs that, like, fits that particular crew. Like, for example, when you are in the terminal area and you're just trying to um, get to the point of being able to challenge the Eclipse crew, it's, like... The music that you're listening to for these um, for these young women is just like more upbeat. It's like um, the selection like makes sense for the type of uh, gang that they are. I say gang. I really mean to say crew because they don't have weapons. That's another thing too. To go to go back to the police thing, like there are points in the game where like the narrative also shows you like the the police like fabricate facts because it's this uh it's this system where it says like oh well you're 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 carrying a weapon and then red looks down at his spray can he's like what and <laughs> you know and it's just like okay but again yeah the the game is like it it it's it the, the whole and back on the the police the anti-police stance it's like that's something that the game holds on to and it doesn't let go of that narrative fabric right up until the end too, because the larger point is that again, when all those resources are targeted to literally just young people who are just trying to have fun and stuff like that, or whatever the case may be, just people, how dangerous is it when someone, despite the fact that that's already dangerous, you know, how dangerous is that when someone's in the driver's seat and they are very purposely using that to, you know, literally crush people, you know? So, yeah. And d despite that, the game is still very fun. I would still recommend it because it's, um, outside of that, it's still very cartoony. It's not like you see blood or anything like that. It's literally where you'll, you'll crash into people and stuff like that, but you're still, like, you're still watching this young brown person, like, <laughs> breakdance as you're going, like... 70 miles per hour on your booster pack and i don't know it's, it's great because um I, I i try not to to try not to mention that obviously it was inspired by jet grind radio and jet set um jet set future but but still it's like what they did was they saw this game 
and franchise, which is effectively dead. And they just decided, well, we're going to make our own thing. So despite all that, and yeah, it's it's really good. Like I would, after just spending time playing Bomber Cyberfuck, um, I would easily recommend it to, to anyone. And I would, um, I dare say I would have to move it into the list I have with like Umaragi Generation as, as something that should be studied for what it presents in game design and storytelling. Nice. So, that sounds yeah. incredible. Not gonna. I knew nothing about this game prior to you starting to talk about this, and now I'm like, I need to play it immediately, like right now. Yeah. Like I've been scrolling I'm, I'm, through screenshots. Yeah, <laughs> I am the same I'm, thing. I'm like scrolling through screenshots as you're talking, and I'm like, okay, this actually looks incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'll be honest. I'm not. I'm not being rude to Jeffrey. I just kind of wanted to get ahead, clear ahead. So I'm watching. I'm watching a gameplay as as I'm listening to Jeffrey. And uh, it looks amazing. My own, my my only question is, I am terrible at the Jet Set Radio, Tony Hawk's that style of game. Mm. Like, is this still going to be accessible to me? Am I still going to enjoy it? it? It looks, it looks fun. But then whoever's playing is clearly good at it. <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it's still the thing about the game is you will have challenges where it's going to ask you. It's like, well, you need to hit this number of points for like <laughs> to clear something. So if you're not really good at that, right. you know, because of like, you know, dexterity and all that, then yeah, it might not be too fun. Still, I would I, I would try it, you know, uh, and play it because the thing the thing I really appreciate about the game is that it saves like it doesn't tell you, but it's saving all the time, right? You can literally mm. have just finished the mission yeah. and you could just turn it right off and go do something else, and as soon as you start it up, your character is going to be standing right there. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Nice. Yeah. So um, that was that. That's become my expectation nowadays. Well, with things like Switch's sleep mode and like Xbox Quick Resume, is like if I turn off a game, I want it to be exactly where I was yeah. when I was going back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nice. Thank you so much for that, Jeffrey. That's uh, that looks brilliant. Oh, yeah, I might have to. I might have to look into this one. Yep. It looks brilliant. I've got to stop watching it because otherwise, <laughs> I'm gonna get distracted. Um, I believe that leaves me. It does. I've gone with perhaps the most obvious choice but i don't care um my game of the year is the legend of zelda tears of the kingdom oh here's a surprise um <laughs> i know <laughs> I mean, obviously like long-running nintendo fan long-running zelda fan and breath of the world is such an amazing game and tears of the kingdom is even more so i kind of love i love what it's done i love what it, what the game is and i'll go into that in detail but i also kind of love what it's done to my mindset since I joined GI, and particularly since we started writing Game of the Year um, pieces, I put myself under this weird self-inflicted pressure to play as many new games or as many games that people are talking about as possible. Don't always accomplish it, but I feel like I should. So when I was playing Baldur's Gate 3, I was like, I need to get through as much of this possible because Starfield is coming out soon. When I was playing Starfield, I need to get through this as fast as possible because Assassin's Creed Mirage is coming out. And then it's Spider-Man. And then it's Super Mario Brothers Wonder. And so on. And there's, whatever I play, there's always a nagging feeling of, but should I be playing something else? When I'm playing Zelda, I don't care. I just want to play Zelda. And it's now getting to the stage where I play other games and it's like, I'd rather be playing Zelda. This game is phenomenal. It's obviously standing on the shoulders of Breath of the Wild. Like, it's it's using the same world again, but the, the way it's changed the world is really impressive. Um, 
it's the sheer scope of it. Again, like going back to how it's changed my mindset. I'm fairly sure I've bored you all with my complaints that anything that's 100 hours, I am not going to play. I do not have time for 100-hour games. I kind of made the exception for for Baldur's Gate 3 because I will play that over time. But if anything is longer than 20 hours, if anything's just packed with too much side quests and collectibles and all these things, I, w- I won't have the time for it. Last night, I passed the 100-hour mark for Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So... And I and I don't I don't feel like it's bloated. I don't feel I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface of it. It's I I'm genuinely struggling to put into words why it's amazing. I think it's it's the it's the sense of discovery which is really impressive given that it is in uh, what I many would argue is a recycled world. Like it's set in Breath of the Wild's Hyrule, but there are so many differences to how it's laid out roadways are different certain paths aren't open to you the shrines are all different in places and everywhere you go you will find something different that you didn't find in breath of the wild that alone would have been cool but then you've got all the sky islands which have usually got some sort of puzzle or battle or vehicle parts that you can experiment or a shrine and then you've got the depths which is this whole other game which is you know this underwater and underground upside down stranger things sort of uh caverns where i honestly i I didn't think i'd get into the depth i I kind of ventured there quite early and it's like nope this is all too hard not interested this clearly this is clearly just for the hardcore anytime i end up going down to the depths for whatever reason whether it's to like collect some sort of thing or finish a quest or whatever i find myself just wanting to clear more and more of that map and exploring and seeing what else is around there and what else I can find. And I will realise, oh, hang on, I've just spent 10 hours in the depths. What was I doing on the surface again? I can't remember. This game is just, it's amazing for distracting you with something new. Like, a lot of games, they pad out the main quest by, you'll come to story beats where you cannot progress until you've done X amount of side quests or levelled up X amount. And it's all kind of a little bit forced. It's a little bit kind of um, artificially extended. This is so organically extended because you just can't help looking for other things to do or getting distracted by other things to do. At the risk of rattling off an example, so you get to the Zora's Domain area and you need to get the Zora armor to swim up a waterfall like you do in the first one. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And whatever's at the top of that waterfall, that's probably going to be dangerous. I'll upgrade the armor while I'm at it. Well, to upgrade the armor, you need... A certain fish i'll go find that fish while looking for that fish i found a couple of shrines completed a couple of shrines eventually um found the fish went to a great fairy fountain to upgrade my armor thought while i'm here i'll upgrade my standard armor because i've got all the materials and stuff now found that the great fairy couldn't uh, um upgrade me to the maximum level because i hadn't found the last fairy fountain it's like i'm sure i found all of them hang on let's find the last one right so off i went found the last one i realized where it was but i hadn't completed the the musical troop quest that you have to do to unlock so i then went and did that when i came back i got distracted by another side quest and i realized two hours later i still all i'd wanted to do was upgrade my zara armor and continue that part of the main quest two hours later i am completely on the far end of the map and i don't care because i'm just having such a good time it's it's just it's incredible i love that they've built on the the very minimalist storytelling of uh breath of the wild so there's only like a handful of cutscenes that tell the overall story but 
they're subtly done and I think well written enough that you still get the sense of this much larger, grander, epic adventure that's going on. And then the big one, the saving grace for me, ever since Majora's Mask, I have held Zelda to a high standard when it comes to side quests. Majora's Mask had these very emotional, very personal side quests where you're actually helping people, you're getting involved in their stories. Complete polar opposite to things like Skyward Sword's side quests where it's like, my baby dropped her rattle, can you go find it? Or my house is too dusty, can you clean it for me? Like some of the side quests in uh, Tears of the Kingdom, I feel like this is more true for Tears of the Kingdom than it was for Breath of the Wild feel like genuine storylines you're genuinely helping out people like there's you know the mayoral the mayoral, mayoral elections of Hatino village there's um Tarrytown there's a certain character who's preparing for a kind of rite of passage and helping them the uh the the newspaper quest where you're looking into percent potential sightings of princess zelda and each one is different and you know each one is not going to end with you finding zelda because that would be daft but each of them have got quite a satisfying answer and they never feel cheesy or you know shallow they genuinely feel like no this is a world these are people out there and these people need help um, I honestly could keep going on, but I, I, I'll stop there. <laughs> I mean, it's actually so lovely to hear you talk about it because, like, this was going to be my game of the year, and I loved this game so much. And like, when I like started making notes about for this very podcast, I was like, shit, I don't even remember why I loved Zelda so much because Baldur's Gate three. Have I told you about Baldur's Gate three? But like, and so hearing you say all these things, I'm like, damn it, it was so good. It is so good, and like, I'm almost sad that I don't get to like gush about how much I love this game <laughs> but I adored it too and like everything you just said is all the reason why I love it like it's it's that feeling of like it's a living breathing world and I know we say that about a lot, a lot of video game worlds but like yeah like it's it's so true it's, and it just felt like the perfect continuation of Breath of the World which I replayed in its entirety in preparation of Tears of the Kingdom which is why I only played like three video games this year uh, and like still like for the new things to discover and explore and it's just like, I feel like all of us, uh, yeah, all of us actually have picked like kind of like sequels and stuff like that. It's like, all that to say, I'm always going on about how I'd rather we stop doing sequels. Like I'm all for new IP, new ideas, new things. But like all the games we've talked about, I feel like are an example of like sequels done right. <laughs> uh, all in their own different ways or like stuff like that. And But yeah, Tears of the Kingdom is, is incredible and... Yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to add because you said it all, but it's just (laughs) pure joy, that game. It's as you say, it's like, it's, I I agree with you. Like, I'd love a lot more new IP, but the key thing is new ideas. And this does have new ideas. Like, you know, the, the whole depths area is something really different. It's a very different way to play a Zelda game. The crafting mechanic, which I've barely mentioned, and I've barely mentioned because I've barely touched it, like, you know, the vehicles, the stuff that people have created with those, you know, the ultra hand and the fuse ability and like all this sort of stuff, like, is amazing. Like, you know, the, the scope you've got to create, you know, vehicles and mechs and inventions and stuff like, and that's none, none of that is essential. Like, you can get through most, if not all of the game without ever really kind of, you know, putting those Zonai devices together. But the fact that you can do that, like, it, it's... It does, it does feel new. It's a sequel, but there's enough in there that makes it feel like something very different. Regardless of the the franchise dressing that it's got on, the mechanics of it are a new game, and that's what makes it amazing. So, People ultimately... Consider... Oops, go ahead. <clears throat> 
so ultimately i think um tears of the kingdom falls just shy of breath of the wild for me because breath of the wild was just entirely new but the moments where i thought oh is this am i gonna like this better than breath of the wild is it gonna you know make more of an impact on me we're messing around with the things like the the fusing stuff together the traversal through the thing and then more than that helping that dude with the signs for hudson's construction oh i know (laughs) yes that was such a glorious pure wonderful bit of busy work like i'm going around the world not looking for for ganon or anything like that i'm just looking for that that poor dude who can't figure out how to put up a sign every everywhere i'm looking, like that was what was driving me for a good chunk of the game and <laughs> and and it was almost like the Terrytown thing in, in breath of the wild it was just like a, a really distilled bit of like pure fun joy from from the game because like every every one of those signs especially as you get later in it's it's got that sort of obvious little like hooks on the back of the sign that tell you okay well here's what you're supposed to do because you know obviously the materials right near here will slot in there just fine but trying to make the most awful convoluted unlikely to work (laughs) sort of contraption and have that stand up and getting a picture of that yeah that was great every time loved it yeah, and comparing, like, my partner and I kept comparing how we would do it, and it's just really f- this silly, stupid stuff, but it makes it so good, like, just, like, how we would probably do it really straight and nicely and stuff, and mine were completely, like, chaos, but it would still send right, which is what matters. <laughs> it's the depth to the system as well, like, the amount of stuff that you combine in the comedy. Genuinely, I think I was 80 hours in, before I found the shrine that teaches you you can put a rocket on your shield to zo- to zoom upwards. Mm. Like, there was me going through for the first 79 hours, wishing I still had the, is it Rito's Gale from the first game, which lets you just shoot upwards and then float down. And I was like, 80 hours in, I was like, how have I not thought of this before? Of course I can attach a rocket to my shield. Of course. It just make yeah, it just makes sense. The thing about Zelda that I have seen is that I've seen people just do things where I've asked, like, have have you considered getting an engineering degree? Because look at what <laughs> you're doing. Like, I've For watched real. people stream, and I've just seen things on social media, and it's just, like, it, it, it makes me think about, it's not so much that this might be quote-unquote hard, but just look at what your brain is, is doing. This is amazing. You are unlocking things I don't even know if you knew about yourself. Just, just building things and figuring out contraptions or what have you. I think you have a career in something you may have not considered, you know. And For real, no. I've, it, it made me feel like like the least creative person to see what other people came up with. I, <laughs> I've the things, the things that people have thought of, um, how to defeat a a, a, a fire breathing dragon and stuff like that. I'm like, whoa, this is, I could watch hours as I think I have, and I I have nothing to say other than the fact that I will gladly watch people play that game and figure stuff out. That That's what I'll say about that. 
So what about the um, the the games that weren't quite our game of the years? Anyone wanna wanna quickly mention their honorable mentions? It's not a new game, but like because I've been playing obviously all the Remedy games. Like if it wasn't Alan Wake to it, it would have been Control, even though it's not out. Like it's not new, but it's new for me. So, but um, again with that, it was just the way they blended the the multimedia thing again because. It's weird how, like, my favourite character out of that one literally isn't actually in the game. He's only in videos. The dark Casper Darling. And he's... Who is also the voice of Alan Wake, which is really confusing me now when I play Alan Wake. So. <laughs> <laughs> which they've started connecting in Alan Wake 2 and now it's making me even more confused. So now all the games are, like, linked and it's just, like, blowing my mind. But, yeah. That, that gets an honourable mention. <laughs> Don't worry, my honourable mention is also not a game that came out this year. In fact, it came out uh, 12 years ago, and that's Ghost Trick Phantom Detective, which I played for the first time this year. I know it got re-released on Switch, but um, I don't know, I didn't want to buy it on Switch, uh, and someone lent me the, uh, the 3D, their 3DS copy, so I played it on 3DS. I played on my 3DS for the first time in years, and it was so good. And like, I don't know how I missed this game the first time around. It released in uh, 2011, uh, and like, there's a, the physicality to playing on the 3DS, especially for a game like this, that it makes it just so enjoyable. And I'm like, oh, the 3DS is just the best, and it has to be one of the best plot of all the times. And the music, the animation, the dialogues, the puzzles are all like just incredible. It's a game I didn't expect to play this year. It's a game I didn't expect to love this year. Uh, and it's just incredible. So if anyone out there has not played Ghost Trick uh, Phantom Detective, just play it on your 3DS or on your Switch or whatever. But it's just brilliant. Um, my game of the... Uh, well... Um... I'm sorry, I almost said game of the year. I meant to say honorable mention would go to uh, Venba from um, Hisai Games. Um, Venba is something I think most people should play, mostly because it, it it's a cooking game, yes, but it's also narratively driven, and it's a story about a Indian family that's that immigrates to Canada and it pretty much just shows you, you know, what, what, what life tends to be like for, for people and, um, how important like maintaining culture is and how food, making food, uh, serves as a vehicle of like, you know, being connected with your family, maintaining your culture and, um, things of that nature and yeah it, it, it's really good like it um it, it definitely makes you think about you know like whether or not you know what your relationship is like with your your parents either either good or what your relationship are with your parents and food and how you know you regularly practice your culture and how how proud of you are there's there's a um i don't want to give it away but there's a particular scene in the game with the um the son of the family he's a little older where someone makes a comment about something and it and it like stops him dead in his tracks and he immediately thinks about his relationship with his mom and his heritage and yeah it's really good music's really good um even when you mess up with cooking the game <laughs> the way the game just functions it it, it like 
and he encourages you to say, well, maybe you want some help and stuff like that. And it, it, it's short and yeah, it's sweet. So I would recommend Venmo for sure. Yeah, it's a Toronto studio, right? Is it set in Toronto? Mm-hmm. It's set in Canada, yes. I want to say it's Toronto. I'm not sure. Well, yeah, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've had enough people say, "Oh, you're you're Canadian? Do you know um John?" <laughs> that Canada it, is perceived as a small enough place. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I just checked uh, and it is set in Toronto. Oh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> uh so my my honorable mentions are it's it's all just retro stuff I've been playing. Um Paper Mario a Thousand Year Door is mm. is great um it was great the first time when nintendo remakes it and re-releases it next year i'm sure it'll still be great uh nhl hits 2003 is is really just a timeless game you wouldn't think it but that is there there are not enough good arcade sports games these days and and we need we need more hockey games with goalie fights uh chrono trigger i played for the first time most of it (laughs) normally i bounce off within half an hour for some reason i got i i I got right near the end this time it's good just didn't get over the hump and then axelay on the super nintendo it's just so many good games there were a lot of good games for me this year just a lot of them weren't from this year hmm That is all we've got time for. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for listening this year. We're going to be back after Christmas uh, with the GameStreet.biz microcast every Monday and we're going to do a new monthly podcast where the team talk about the biggest stories of the past month. Uh, You can find all previous episodes of the podcast and the microcast on the same podcast feed on the podcasting platform of your choice and you can get more news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at GameStreet.biz. (laughs) 